Usually, contractors protest to the government over matters related to money. But there's also a long history of non-monetary damage, usually related to interpretations of contracts. A recent case has affirmed this line of claim, as we hear from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. And Dan, tell us about this case. Who protested and what did they protest over and what happened? So, Tom, this case was a Contract Disputes Act non-monetary claim by a company called J&J Maintenance. And J&J Maintenance brought a non-monetary claim relating to how costs were reimbursed under its contract. It had a time and materials contract, and under a time and materials contract, the materials part is reimbursed at cost. And the government and the contractor disagreed over how to calculate cost. J&J said its cost was its subcontractor's price plus markup. And the government took the position that only the cost to the subcontractor was reimbursable under the contract. And so there was effectively a contract interpretation dispute. But as part of this dispute, the government took the position that this was not a valid non-monetary claim, that you could put a number on this. And that question was posed by a Federal Circuit decision in 2018. You mentioned in our intro here that non-monetary claims have a long history at both the Boards of Contract Appeals and at the Court of Federal Claims. And that's true. Actually, the Boards of Contract Appeals heard non-monetary claims before the Contract Disputes Act was even enacted in 1978. The Court of Federal Claims gained non-monetary claim jurisdiction in the 90s with amendments to the Tucker Act. So there was a long history at both tribunals of hearing claims that did not involve requests from the government for money. But Uh, it sounds like this did involve a request for money because it was the basis for cost reimbursement. Well, so there's a fine point here, and this was the government's argument and was also the argument in the 2018 Federal Circuit decision that changed this area of the law. So the issue in Secura Force was a convenience termination. The contractor brought a non-monetary claim saying that this convenience termination was a breach of contract. And the Federal Circuit said, you're styling your claim as a non-monetary claim. But in fact, ultimately, the only significant consequence of your claim will be getting money from the government. And the Federal Circuit said, well, yes, this will be a second proceeding. After we determine whether there's a breach or not, you would only get money damages by bringing a second claim. Still, at the end of the day, this is reducible to money and there are no non-monetary stakes here. Right, because every contract has consideration, which is money. Otherwise, it's not a contract. This is part of what's complicated here, Tom. That I mean, that's what Plato told me. (laughs) Of course, at the end of the day, claims involve money. The Federal Circuit, though, in Securiforce, raised the question of whether there were any claims still that did not just involve money, but involved other significant consequences to contractors. And J&J addressed this question squarely. Uh, J&J said, hey, yes, there are costs involved here, but we'll avoid incurring additional costs depending on the outcome of the case, and we'll change our performance. So one of its grounds for non-monetary claim was submission of supply house invoices or or special invoices that showed the subcontractor's costs. And J&J said, well, if you decide in our favor, we've been providing these invoices under protest, we'll stop performing that task. And not performing a task is a significant consequence independent of money damages from the government. And similarly, avoiding incurring costs, they said, well, if we can't recover markup on subcontractors, maybe we'll self-perform, maybe we'll directly purchase the materials instead of having the subs 
purchase them so that we can get markup on it. All right. What was the decision in this case? So the board agreed with the contractor that the ability to avoid incurring costs and to avoid performing a contractual task were under the SecureForce decision and the test in SecureForce significant consequences that supported a non-monetary claim. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And tell us exactly why this is such an important case. The reason this is important, the distinction between a monetary and non-monetary claim, is that there are jurisdictional requirements for a monetary claim. So uh, if you're stating a monetary claim, it has to be stated in a some certain. It has to have a specific amount that you're demanding. And it also requires for claims over $100,000 that the contractor certify the claim. And so in this case, J&J had not stated a some certain in its claim, and it also had not certified. I think it actually wasn't required to certify. It was below the threshold. But in any event, the decision on non-monetary claims affects the jurisdictional requirements. And the board said here, if you don't have to perform a task or if you can avoid incurring costs, then you have a valid non-monetary claim that doesn't need to meet the monetary claim requirements. Okay, so all of this detail means what then? What's the significance of this case that non-monetary is a real thing that can be sued in these different protest venues and that contractors should be able to do that, right? The reason that non-monetary claims jurisdiction is important is that when you have a valid non-monetary claim, it doesn't need to meet the jurisdictional requirements for monetary claims. So monetary claims need to be stated in a sum certain, and if the claim amount is over $100,000, the contractor is required to certify the claim. So here, if the board said... If the contractor can avoid performance of a contractual task or can avoid incurring costs, then those are significant consequences that are not monetary, that support a non-monetary claim, and therefore you don't have to state a sum certain. And if it's over $100,000, you don't have to certify. But jurisdiction, isn't that where you take the claim to whether it's federal district court or to the boards of contract appeals? Yes. So the argument over non-monetary versus monetary claims is whether the boards and the Court of Federal Claims have jurisdiction to decide non-monetary claims at all or appeals of non-monetary claims. And the J&J maintenance decision demonstrates that it's still possible for contractors to bring non-monetary claims at the boards and at the Court of Federal Claims, even under the demanding secure force test. And that's good news for both contractors and the government alike, because where non-monetary claims are asserted in appropriate circumstances, they have the potential to resolve disputes early on between the contractor and the government before there's major disruption or expense and that can prevent the dispute from becoming a larger problem. Right. It seems like you should look at all of those clauses that might potentially cause money issues way to the left of finding out somewhere during the performance of the contract is, wait a minute, we don't agree on what I'm submitting to you. It seems like this should be established at the time of the award or even at the time of negotiations before the award so that you don't have these non-monetary claims even come up in the first place. Yes, it is preferable, certainly for contractors who have to continue performing during the pendency of a dispute to get some kind of resolution, sometimes in the form of a non-monetary claim, so that they can alter their performance accordingly based on the judgment. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Some good lessons there. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And... You know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. 
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.